Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Garib Seamus, who is a visionary in the superhero world. He started Comic Con over 25 years ago, reaching billions of people. Garib, who's also a very good friend of mine, recently started a company called Hero Maker Studios, a technology-first entertainment company utilizing NFTs and Web3 storytelling. So he's all about games and interactive media. And we're really going to talk about the impact that comic world and superheroes and gaming has on our youth. Garib, my friend, welcome to the show. Hey, so excited to be here and see you, <laughs> see your lovely friends. It's likewise, likewise. And this is our friend anniversary. I think. I was thinking back to when we first met, which has to be, gosh, six or seven years ago at Art Basel. Am I right? Yes, it was our art slash friendiversary, however you <laughs> pronounce that. Yes, it was literally at this time years ago when we met for the first time. And it was it was just that instant connection that we had. It was just yeah. uh, right from day one. It was yeah, it was friend. so fun. And and you know, you've done so many things with your career. And of course, I met you having a an art show with your gorgeous art, which we see in the background. And you know, we both share this love of art and telling stories. And that's really what I want to talk about today. And and tell your incredible story. And of course, nobody's better at telling it than you. But how I know you is essentially you went from volunteering at your parents' comic book shop, which was called Toy Whiz, that you begged them to set up. And that went and morphed into a magazine called Wizard, which, of course, I think everyone has heard of it. So you're the publisher of Wizard. And then you went on, tell me if I've got all this right. And then you went on, you bought, I think for $100,000, you bought the Chicago Comic Con and turned it into Wizard World Comic Con, which drew about 50,000 nerdy superhero fans all dressed up in their favorite superhero outfits, which sort of spiraled into superstardom when you developed the ultimate Spider-Man comic book, which turned into the very great Spider-Man that Tobey Maguire played. And I think it like grossed at 800 something million at the box office. Have I got that right? Is this who you are? Some parts are under exaggerated and some parts are over exaggerated. Oh, okay. You know me. <laughs> yeah, I can uh, I can fill in those gaps and kind of equalize it out. So what happened? You started as a comic superhero geeky fan yourself, right? You were locked in your parents' bedroom at home and you were trying to figure out what to do with your life. And then this all happened. Yeah, I was kind of the opposite, though. Like, I, I, I never, even though I was kind of geeky and nerdy kid, I, I never thought of myself as that being a negative, right? So a lot of times you know, back in those days, like we're talking 30, 40 years ago, where, you know, being a geek or a nerd was a very derogatory term. Yeah. And uh, now, now it's, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, now it's cool. But back then, yeah. I never thought it wasn't cool. And uh, mm -hmm. so I have three brothers, grew up collecting sports cards and comic books. 
And it be, just became a really fun family business that my mom opened up a comic book store. And so when I was in college, literally, I mean, this was in high school, but when I was in college, my mom would send me stacks of comics and uh, all my friends would steal my comics because I was known as the comic book guy on campus. And then when I graduated, there was nothing to know about what was going on in the comic book world. So I started a newsletter for the store, which mm-hmm. became so popular that I wound up turning it into a magazine called Wizard. And uh, within a very short period of time, it literally went from 20,000 copies to 300, 400,000 copies a month. It was just incredible how it exploded all over the world. And it, it was great because it really showed how our voice was resonating around the world, like all these people that wanted to know what was going on in the superhero world. And we weren't alone, you know, because it was a, there was no internet back in the mid-1990s and the early 90s. So the only way you knew what was going on was through my magazine. And that became so big that I decided to throw a party. And uh, that's when I acquired the Chicago Comic-Con. But, but back then, it wasn't a brand. You know, back 30 years ago, Comic-Con was just short for comic convention. It's like people call Federal Express FedEx. It was just an easy way to say something, but it was really just old people selling old comic books on tabletops. But we were this new young generation that that really wanted to do stuff that was fun and exciting and, and bring the movies and television and gaming and toys into that world. And that's what we did. And then, uh, you know, we had a bunch of celebrities show up and and then 20,000 people showed up at our first event. And it was just this magical moment where all these disenfranchised people came together under one roof. And then cut to today, my brother and I produced 180 Comic-Cons. We've sold 5 million tickets, but more importantly, reached billions of people around the world. And really, you know, to me, it was just not just the comic book world and not just superheroes and how that influenced. I think it it had an impact on, on almost how every company or brand has been able to treat their fans, where all of a Mm. sudden, you know, they couldn't just disrespect them or just take them for granted. They really had to be very proactive in building these communities. And I think Mm -hmm. that was kind of the biggest contribution of it all. Mm -hmm. So Comic-Con was exactly that, right? It was a community of superhero fans who either were selling magazines or loving a superhero and wanted to be part of that community which you built. You were publishing a magazine where you would talk about the superheroes and that eventually led to this movie, right? Spider-Man. How did that come about? Yeah, so what happened was, you know, going back to the community side of things, you know, when you look at all the biggest magazines in the world, they didn't have events attached to them. You, there was no Rolling Stone event. There was no Vogue event. There was no Sports Illustrated event, you know, mm-hmm. where sports fans got together. So we were very, very innovative in that way that it wasn't just a matter of publishing this magazine. It was this idea that we could bring people together around a common interest. And it just so happened to be, you know, superheroes. And then we got people to dress in costumes and we gave them mm-hmm. prizes for that. And because mm-hmm. it was all pre-internet, you know, everyone around the world was seeing this in the magazine, and it just it just created this whole worldwide phenomenon. But what happened was uh, there was a time where Marvel went into bankruptcy, and the storylines were starting to get really outdated because as the editors grew older. So one of my friends had become the CEO, the new CEO and president of Marvel, and um, he basically called me up one day. He was like, hey, I got the job. You know, what do we do? You know, so I was like, well, we got to 
got to make Spider-Man a little bit more contemporary. You know, he's gotten mm-hmm. old here, you know, and soon he's going to go for a colonoscopy if, if he doesn't like become the character. Nothing wrong with that. If wrong that's with good. That. But <laughs> some teenage kid in a comic book shouldn't all of a sudden be aged where, where that's a, a, something that he should be looking forward to. So, yeah, so they created this incredible storyline called Ultimate Spider-Man, which then, you know, really resonated in the film side of things so that Marvel, you know, when they came back with that first film with Tobey Maguire, a lot of that was based on the storyline that they had created in that comic book. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so that was, uh, you know, some impact that I was luckily able to have, you know, mm-hmm. in the Marvel world. Nice, nice. Now, when I think back to my childhood, it was all about Wonder Woman. And I seem to recall that Linda Carter played yes. Wonder Woman. I guess it's the 70s, right? And she's still so gorgeous and out there, you know, spreading the word. And that's just become so iconic, right? Now, I'm even hosting what they call now Wonder Woman dinners, right, at my house. Yeah. And it just means so much to all of us women, right? Because, of course, you know, we all believe we're all our own little mini Wonder Woman superhero because that's just part of being a woman. (laughs) We managed to get a lot done. But the point is, is that that brand has really survived the test of time, right? Because it's been constantly reinvented. It's been rewritten into another film. As you say, a younger actress has come and it's done really well. I believe there was like one and two of the revival. Yeah. But the thing is that Hollywood is just, you know, for all the talk of diversity, they were still so hesitant to make a strong female lead superhero character. And, you know, that's the that's the tragedy of it is that, Mm. um, you know, it took so long for her to get her own film you know, just like it took so long for Black Panther to have a film and look at how extraordinary that film franchise has done because, you know, Hollywood just never wanted to invest in anything other than what they were used to or what they thought could just be a secure way to go. But it also took, you know, Linda Carter was the most extraordinary person because she embodied that character in a way that it was indistinguishable between Wonder Woman and Carter. Like if you met her in person, like you actually felt like you were meeting Wonder Woman. And I think that, you know, the most successful franchises have people that represent that brand in a way where it's indistinguishable. And it took it took Gal Gadot for that to happen again. We've had her at one of our events, actually one of her first public appearances ever to meet the fans. And she literally has this aura around her where when you meet her, like you think you're meeting Wonder Woman. She has this presence about her. And then also Mm -hmm. like to me, one of the things that I talk about, especially with her, is that uh, she has an ability to just be present. Like when you see her and you talk to her, like you feel like you're the only person, you know, in front of her. And that to me Mm -hmm. is one of the things that why she's worked so well you know, as playing that character. And it's really phenomenal Mm. for women and young girls to have that iconic character to look up to. So where is the comic book world going now? You know, my daughter has never read comics, right? right? She she hasn't. But I have a little girl and I, I don't know, I equate comic books to boys mostly. I don't know whether that I made that up in my head or that's the reality. But what's going on with it now? What's going on with comic books? Are there still all those collectors out there and yeah. are they worth a lot of money? Yeah, you know, it's it's shifting because what, what we're doing is we're moving from a paper-based world into a digital world. 
And when you think about a paper-based comic book, that requires somebody to go to a store physically and buy a book. And that's a guy. You know, quite frankly, that's going to be guys. But one thing that really shifted that dynamic is manga and anime out of Asia, you know, really started hitting upon themes that were very different than American comics. It started incorporating love and and all kinds of other themes that that weren't taken into account here in the U.S. comic books. And that type of material has shifted into more of a digital format. And now that that stuff and that material is more available or readily more available to read on your mobile device, it has a lot of female readers. So when you look at the manga and anime world, it's a very, very heavy female-based audience. And that's as the digital platform starts uh, growing more around the world, you're going to start creating a lot more female uh, readers out there. And then, and quite frankly, that's one of the things that I'm really trying to spearhead is to create material that you wouldn't normally find in a traditional comic book store. I definitely want to talk about that more. And just so we understand this Asian phenomenon, are you talking about the name is escaping me, but you see these little Japanese girls, well, not little, they're also adults, dressed in a certain way in those clothes with the little socks and the head and a certain... Yeah, cosplay. Oh, is that what they're called? Okay. Is that what you're talking about? Because otherwise I have no idea what you're talking about. You might want to explain it. Well, it's called cosplay. And cosplay is not just the idea of dressing up in the costume. It's also acting like that character or or representing that character. So and cosplay is a manifestation of the material, right? It's the idea that, you know, you like Spider-Man, so I'm going to dress up like Spider-Man because I want to represent who Spider-Man is. And maybe that's somebody who's, you know, who has greater responsibility or I want to be Superman or I want to be Batman, right? So cosplay is just a way to represent who you are. I kind of joke that like, you know, everybody that dresses up that goes to a soccer match or a football game, that's cosplay just in sports. You know, so for me, you know, cosplay kind of takes on a lot of different forms. But yes, you know, predominantly a lot of the cosplay that you see is based on the anime or manga characters out of Asia. Mm. And I see pockets of them occasionally in the U.S., right? It is it yeah. is filtering through to the West, but not like it's taken over Asia. I mean, I feel like it's predominantly Japan, some of China. Am I right? Well, not China, but it has taken over all throughout Asia. It's not just a Japanese thing. It may have had a lot of roots there and may have become successful there kind of as a primary market, but it's really gotten popular all over. And it just goes to show how comic books have become an incredible cultural phenomenon, right? So when you think about a culture today, so much of the U.S. culture has pervaded the whole world, right? So the Avengers films are popular everywhere, right? The U.S. music, films, TV shows, right? Like U.S. culture has pervaded everywhere. But now all of a sudden you see manga and anime, which originated out of Asia, populating not just the U.S., but becoming popular all over the world. It's kind of like, to me, not the first because it's it's not like new, but it just goes to show that for the right type of look and feel and material, you know, there's a possibility for culture outside of the U.S. to pervade some 
culture all throughout the world. Okay, well, we're really going to delve into that because, as you know, I am very, very interested in how we can use this medium to reach kids, right? Like, we are in a mess, Garib. I mean, when I tell you, your kids are grown, right? But I'm an 11-year-old girl, and I am terrified. I am terrified. Like, we are in such a mess because of pop culture, right? Because of the Kardashians, because, I mean, I, I don't want to speak bad about the Kardashians because they're brilliant marketers, right? And I respect their ability to market themselves, build brands, you know, get out there. But to what cost is that? I mean, you know, my 11-year-old is obsessed with these images and products that she sees on TikTok, Instagram, whatever. And it's her life, you know, and I'm I'm so, so worried about reaching her with the right messages and also of how she should look, right? Like, it is scary how she wants to look as an 11-year-old. It's interesting because, like... <laughs> You know, I felt that way when my kids were born, right? So I have a daughter who's 24 mm -hmm. and a son who's just turned 23. And I almost feel like every generation feels that way about their kids growing up, right? How many times do we hear all of a sudden Elvis came around and girls were shaking their hips at uh, music yeah. events, yeah. right? So, yeah. so I, I think what you're feeling is actually very common through every generation, you know, even when my kids were born, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm bringing my kids into this world with all the turmoil mm -hmm. that's going on. Right. So so I think we all feel that way. I think the material is a lot more readily available. What I do think has changed is the idea that whereas the parents could have been a lot more focused back then because they weren't into the, the different mediums. Now, even the parents are socially distracted as well. So I think a lot of the Big paranoia that Big parents problem. are feeling mm -hmm. is that they've gotten caught up in it, too. So just as much as your daughter might be caught up in a lot of what's going on, you're caught up in it, too, because it's it's bombarding yeah. you as well. And you know how hard it is for you yourself to stay out of it than to protect them from it. So that's really where I think the next wave for what needs to happen is to start putting out themes that are very, very important. And that, that's kind of one of my goals out there is that we live in a society where we have a, a major lack of role models. And even though we have terrible politics here and the politicians who we just don't believe in, it's not like other countries are enjoying their politicians. You know, I mean, when you look at a lot of- oh, It's all, it's it's all the same. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's every yeah, country, it's everywhere. right? It's really bad. Yeah. It's People really talk bad. all the time, yeah. hey, we're mm -hmm. going to go to Canada. It's like, well, they don't like their, their guy as much as we don't like our guy, right? So like, you know, so it's not like it's better somewhere else. And I think that's one of the reasons why superheroes over the last decade have become so popular because in the absence of leadership, people have turned to superheroes, even if it's in a fictional way, people have turned to superheroes to represent what they stand for, what their ideals are. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is, yeah. is that now we need a lot more diversity in that voice. Yeah. And and by yeah. diversity, it doesn't mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes on in the media. It's just the idea that there's a lot of young girls that need to have a voice or a lot of older women or a lot of young boys or or all kinds of families. And there's also a lot of new themes that have emerged right? Everything mm -hmm. from 
from mindfulness and gratitude and consciousness and and all these mm-hmm. kinds of subjects mm-hmm. that haven't mm-hmm. been broached in comic books well, or in those themes. Yeah. And uh, of course, you and I have been talking about what to do about this, right? Which I'm very excited about with the Body Next campaign. And, you know, with this in mind, I visited a high school last week, went down there a couple of times, talked to the students. And, you know, these students were ranging from the age of 15 to 17, right? Maybe 14 to 17. And, you know, I went down to sort of ask them about like all aspects of their bodies and what they were struggling with. And like, I wanted data. I wanted to really understand, okay, this generation of today, how is it different to when I grew up? Now, of course, our bodies haven't changed, but the access to information has changed. The access to porn has changed. And it appears, and I don't know whether this is the correct data, that the onset of depression, anxiety, racism, you know, all of these different issues has greatly increased. Now, I don't know whether that's because we have more access to information and media that appears to be the data or and if it was always there and we just didn't know about it. But I wanted them to go on camera and talk about it. None of them were willing to go on camera and talk about it, even though they knew that that would help the next generation. And so... I am all about this idea of developing content, essentially, through these comic books to reach these kids. So when it comes to teaching our next generation, I'm very proud of you for making that decision to really look at the space to figure out, you know, how do we even talk about these really sensitive issues. I mean, these are sensitive issues. Like these girls were coming up to me privately after my talk and saying, oh, I too have an eating disorder. I throw up, you know, four or five times a day because I have bulimia. Like, and they don't have anyone to relate to. Yeah, that's a big problem, you know, because you have the media that glorifies really bad things, right? So, you know, people are saying bad things and rather than the media ignoring them, they highlight the bad things that they say and then they retweet it or repost it and say, look at the terrible things this person said. So they're, they're actually reinforcing that the more terrible things you say, the more publicity you're going to get. It's actually a terrible cycle, you know, that you're under, right? A lot of countries have bans on like showing people that kill other people They don't want them to get on the news because if you glorify killing other people, you know, that's what they want. Right. So if you do the opposite, which is you ignore them or you purposely don't show them, it takes away the benefit of saying those nasty things for attention. Now, I'm a very, very big free speech person because I've been in the media and I've been in the publishing for a long time. So the only way to really combat that is by glorifying really great voices and showing that you can be very positive and optimistic and be very popular. And I I think it's going to take the idea of being able to create superheroes, quite frankly, to be able to show that you can do that, that you can actually create something that's really positive and very, very popular. And that could be the role model, right? Because superheroes have led in so many other ways. Why can't it lead in that? So that's really why I started my new company, which was to be able to create relatable heroes that represent what people think about and what they hear about, and but to cover themes that glorify 
the things that we want to create a positive impact. So, you know, show me a Marvel comic book that's strictly about love, right? Or mm. or a Warner Brother comic book or a DC comic book that's built upon gratitude, right? It's like you have some yeah. of these most extraordinary yeah. themes out there, but yet we're not glorifying those types of themes out there that would have such a great impact. You know, we have to highlight altercations as a way to exemplify good versus evil versus just, mm. you know, glorifying mm -hmm. someone mm -hmm. who's good for, for being good. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. So let me ask you this. How easy is it to create a superhero character and make it a household name? It's actually very difficult to create something that can resonate on a global scale. First of all, it takes a lot of time, first and foremost. It's not something that can be created overnight, right? So J.K. Rowling took a long time before she got her Harry Potter novels. Spider-Man has been putting out comic books for decades before the film actually took on, right? So, so a lot of the time, it just takes a long time. But secondly, there's a lot of elements that go into creating a character that would achieve that kind of success. And a lot of times it's not just uh, one aspect of it, but like almost anything in any type of artistic feel, it's like what strikes an audience in their heart that they can identify with. And I've kind of boiled it down to a few things that somebody could do if they want to create something that has some global appeal to it. And especially like on the comic books or creating a character side of it, one of them is what I call like uh, something that's evergreen, right? So take Spider-Man, for instance, and I love Spider-Man and I always use it as an example, but Spider-Man is always a kid in high school, right? And he never ages, he never grows up. You know, he's always that kid in high school and it's evergreen in that it's just, it just takes this one moment in time and then freezes that time forever so that it can keep creating stories over and over again that resonate in just that one single moment. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why Spider-Man can become successful because every single kid that goes through high school is gonna experience the same kind of experience that Spider-Man can or goes through or, or can resonate with him. The second mm -hmm. one is what I call ever expanding, meaning that you create a character where there's always new villains. So there's always going to be some new altercation that constantly expands what happens. And then also, you know, there's a lot of other elements to it. It's like, you know, you can't take the spider sense out of Peter Parker. Like it, it's become so ingrained in who he is, you know. Mm -hmm. And so what characteristics can you give to somebody, you know, that has that? And then what are the game mechanics that are there? Right. So how does it work in toys? How does it work in games? Right. So mm -hmm. there's so many things that that need. And again, I don't want to say like it's manufactured, but, you know, there's so many things that go into creating a character and why it would resonate for so long and so mm -hmm. large. And you've got all these characters, right? Pokemon, Hello Kitty. You know, I mean, they've they've all got a life to them and they're just such a phenomenon. You know, I was just yeah. in New York with my daughter and we stumbled across a like a gift shop and it's full of like Hello Kitty stuff. Who knew that she was into that? I didn't know. But right. I, as a grown up, you know, have my vintage Hello Kitty t-shirt, right? That I rock occasionally. And it's so cool, right? So it's very, very interesting. But let's let's switch for a second. And I want to talk about 
now. So you've created this new company and you're very much exploring the digital space and you have started to get into this NFT world. Okay, first of all, you need to explain for us non-nerdy people what an NFT is, like very simply. What is an NFT? Yeah, so what what I want to do, though, is just give you a little context to why an NFT is so popular and mm-hmm. what it's going to be. And then, and then when I tell you what it means, you'll understand why it's become so groundbreaking in what it is. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're in a world right now where we're calling it Web3, right? So we had the Web1 world when the Internet first started. It was what I call like the read world. You read news, you had an e-commerce, you bought from a store. It was one way. You read what was going on. Then we had a the second part of the web revolution was called Web 2. And Web 2 was read-write. So now all of a sudden, not only can we consume, but we were able to now give back. So take social media. Now we can post. We can create our own content. We can create our own social, right? So... So now we were in the read-write world. We're now entering Web3, which is read-write-own. Now we're into a place where you now should be able to own your information, your data, the things that you create. And that hasn't been possible before. When you post to Instagram, Instagram owns that material. They monetize it. You don't get anything out of it. You post stuff on YouTube. You post stuff on TikTok. Those networks are the ones that are the primary beneficiaries of the material that you create. Your health information, you don't own your health information. Mm -hmm. The doctors, the hospitals, the insurance companies, they own your data, right? Mm -hmm. When you get a pimple scratched off of you, you don't control what happens to it. Somebody Mm -hmm. takes that and they send it to 50 different labs and they take that information and maybe they create drugs or they create all kinds of stuff. But but that's yours. You own it. But yet yeah. you have no control over what happens to you and your body or your information or your data. Mm-hmm. And that's the revolution that we're going to be going through. So something okay. was created called the NFT. And it stands for non-fungible token. I'm sure people have heard you know, what it actually stands for. But what it really does is it actually is a technology-based product that confers ownership, meaning that When I have something, I own it. So when people like kind of laugh about the idea of the the board apes, which is this, you know, monkey JPEG that everybody's kind of talking about that are worth tens of thousands of dollars, in some cases, hundreds of thousands, and some have transacted for a million plus dollars. People like, well, what is it about that digital monkey that people find so valuable? And what they find valuable is that they actually own that monkey, like, they could do whatever they want. They can open up a restaurant and have that mm-hmm. monkey be the logo. They can make a movie with that monkey. And the whole point is that it illustrates the idea of ownership. And yeah. right now, that's the earliest version of what people see. But you're all of a sudden starting to see the idea that your health records are going to be encased in what's called an NFT or some sort of digital collectible where you own your your data. And that's really where the NFT world is migrating. And it's what people don't really understand yet because they're only seeing the earliest versions of it. But the reality is it's all about ownership. And it's a it's a contract that states that you own it. Mm. 
Okay. So a lot of companies are getting into the NFT world, right? They're looking at it as also, I think people are obviously looking at NFTs as a money-making operation, right, of today, Web 3.0. Talk us through an example of a very successful, I mean, an NFT is content, right? It's artwork. That's one version of it, right? So that's the part that has become the most popular form of it right now. So like take art, for instance, that's a good example. Uh, Mm -hmm. Up until this point, physical art was the art that people collected of choice. And when people saw digital art, they didn't really respect that as an art form because, well, how are you going to display it? It's some digital whatever. But now Mm -hmm. that people are putting screens in their homes or they have digital television sets that they can show art, all of a sudden now digital art is now transferable and people can view it and people can see it. And we're building video walls everywhere. But the difference between digital art and physical art now is whenever a physical piece of art gets sold, the artist doesn't get a secondary royalty. The artist doesn't benefit from that secondary sale. So every piece of art that you see sold at Sotheby's or Christie's, the original artist gets zero dollars out of that. Digital art, there's a contract attached to it. But it's hard, right? Like in principle, it sounds very easy. But I mean, let's talk about a superhero NFT, right? You went ahead and created a brand new superhero and you've got artwork. Like it's like a brand, right? It needs a whole sort of marketing campaign. It needs buzz. It needs attraction, just like any brand. It's like building a brand to build that NFT. Yeah, it's actually very complicated. You know, people think of it as, oh, we'll just create a digital image here. But the reality is that that there's what's called a smart contract. There's actually a real contract that's attached to that piece of art that everywhere it goes, that contract goes along with it. And that contract says that if it gets sold for a certain amount of money, that the original owner can, let's say, get a 5 or 10% royalty on that. So every time it gets transacted, no matter how many times and for how long, the original owners can keep getting a piece of that. So I created a a franchise called Kumite, and it's this epic battle between heroes and villains, right? There's Mm -hmm. angels versus demons and goblins versus fairies and steampunks and ninjas and warriors and cosmic heroes and villains. And the idea is this epic battle between heroes and villains. And... We created all these characters, and then we did what's called a derivative drop, meaning all the features that these characters had, their costumes, their weapons, their armor, their boots, their belts, their gloves, everything they had got mixed up on a computer randomly and created all new characters based on that art. And then we Mm -hmm. did 9,600 of those that people then bought. And when people bought those characters, they actually own a character in our universe. So take Marvel, for instance. Marvel will never let you own Spider-Man or a derivative version of Spider-Man. My whole life, Marvel has told their fans, you know, play our games, buy our toys, read our comics, watch our Mm -hmm. movies. But the minute you do something with our characters, we're going to sue you or send you a cease and desist letter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. They've sent me those letters. It's licensing. It's licensing. licensing. Right. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, people can own characters in our world. So as we're building, fans could build alongside. 
So they can take their characters. Let's say they own an angel and they own a fairy in our world. They can create their own stories in mm-hmm. our world and they can sell those to their friends through digital comic books or they can make uh, images or they can make their own trading cards. And people now can participate in the business of the franchises that we're creating. And mm-hmm. it's this new paradigm that's going to completely shift how people build massive global franchises now just to go out and try to compete with Disney or Marvel is near impossible these days because, you know, you have to give up so much to get any kind of presence or distribution everywhere that by the time it becomes that big, you're lucky to get a piece of a piece of a piece of a royalty out of it. But with NFTs and with Web3, the idea that you can keep get a franchise and have your fans build your your character franchise alongside of you, you now have the power of the people. You're no longer beholden to just one distribution entity for making you popular. The more you give to the fans, the more you enable them to work alongside of you and create alongside Mm -hmm. of you, the Mm -hmm. bigger these franchises can get on a global basis. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so exciting about it. Yeah. Very, very exciting. We're out of time, but I do want to say one thing because my show is all about you know, getting educated, how to be better parents, how to understand our bodies, how to understand our minds, you know, solving issues that we all deal with. Dungeons and Dragons, right? I am currently plowing my way through Stranger Things with my daughter. It's our little show. And the kids on it are playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I don't know the game, but I've heard things about it, you know, as in, I've heard, for instance, kids can go out and murder somebody and say, okay, I learned that through a game. What are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, a lot of these comic characters, right, are murderers or a lot of it is not fairy tale, right? Some of it is evil and destructive. So last thought on that, and then we have to say goodbye. Yeah, so to me, is like people have always tried to blame media for bad things that happen, right? So whether it was the WWE teaching kids, uh, you know, how to beat each other up with chairs and, you know what I mean? So so people are always trying to blame media or other IP or franchises or characters for the bad that's happening in the world. And the reality is that a lot of that, to me, comes from the lack of attention, you know, that kids are given growing up. You know, I think that you know, if people spent a lot more time, you know, with their kids or with their family, giving them the attention that they need or deserve in life, it would prevent them from doing things that they would be doing to try to get attention. You know, and again, it's not absolute, but to me, a lot of times, you know, people, especially kids act out because they want attention, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's very difficult, right? Some parents are single parents or they have multiple jobs to pay the bills. And it's very, very difficult, you know, in today's world to give kids that attention. And that's why the screens have become, you know, their attention. Yeah, I don't know a family, you know, in my network of families, my my daughter's friends' families, who don't struggle with the same thing. You know, it's either Roblox or, you know, this Roblox phenomenon. I mean, my goodness me. I mean, you know, my daughter comes to me and she wants me to buy her swords and fruit and, you know, you know, you have to go on eBay and find these 
find these things, buy them for her. And then she comes to me and tells me that somebody's stolen them from her. And this is all a digital world that I do not understand. So I'm very happy, Garib, to have you in my life because I know that you can explain all of this to me and yeah. I'm safe in your hands. We're lucky to have you in a, in a place, having this platform that can do some good with your talent. So thank you for being you and for yeah, what you do you. and for being on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Always love seeing you and talking to you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast 10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.